This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, as usual, here to give you a quick rundown on the show before we dive in. On this episode, Josh was flying solo talking with Brian Zerker. Brian is currently the CEO and co-founder of Align, where they help companies optimize workspaces for their teams. But Brian also has a ton of experience as an entrepreneur. And early on in the show, Josh asked him about some of his experiences prior to being an entrepreneur at companies like GE. I have always chased interesting opportunity. You know, at GE, I saw quickly like, wow, this system is a machine that's well run. But the caveat to that is you are tied in kind of a political world. So like I saw a regime change in our division where it went from like an ex-NFL, super fun, collaborative, competitive guy driving the division CEO to somebody who was the opposite of that and watched the management just lose their spines in a matter of 24 hours. And your fate is just dictated by that. And I'm mouth off too much, especially back then. It's not a place where someone like me is gonna thrive unless you get perfectly latched onto somebody there who can explore all the opportunities with you. Later, Josh talks with Brian about how the idea for his current venture, Align, came to be. Probably 2017, 18, when we first you know, were getting the concept of the space up and then actually opening it, was that we were having corporate folks come through with Continental and they would be talking about their needs and what are they trying to do. And we'd hear on these tours, we'd be talking to the C-suite and leadership teams and, oh, hey, uh, you know, I think we need to get a space that the millennials will like. If you know how to ask them questions, you're like, okay, I don't, that actually does no meaning. The right in that their experience they have on site in their offices does not match something. They said millennials, but it's really everybody. <laughs> so the show wraps up with some advice from Brian for all of our listeners out there. I thought about this a little bit in the last couple of years, but I think as you get a little bit more experienced, you get a little older. One of the things I would sort of tell myself is to try to think in longer time horizons. So if I think to my, you know, 21, 22 year old self, especially, you know, I was thinking in 12 hour increments in <laughs> my life and what are they going to do tonight? What was happening? How much money are you currently making? You know, all those, those kind of things. And like I mentioned, I didn't have really like a career thought process. I wasn't thinking about building a company. I mean, I think these instincts, you know, things I had, but so I think I personally just extended my time horizons. This is a great episode for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur, and we hope you learn a lot from Brian throughout the show. All right, that's it for me today. Let's get the show on the road. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we're talking with Brian Zerker. Brian is currently the CEO and co-founder of Align. Align helps companies optimize their work experience for their employees. More on what that means later. Brian actually has a history as an entrepreneur as well, having previously been a co-founder and a leader at Scene, which was eventually acquired by ICX Media. Excited to have Brian on today to talk about his latest venture, as well as touching on his experience with his previous one at Scene and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Brian. Yeah, good to be here. So take me back, you know, like to learn a little bit about the background of our guests. And sometimes we talk about things as far back as childhood and where you grew up and siblings. Um, were you here in Columbus or where were you born and raised? Yeah, Columbus native, lived in Dublin. Growing up before it was what it is today. Spent time there. Ended up uh, going to Butler University in Indianapolis, play lacrosse, and um, stayed in Indy for a uh, better part of five or six years after that. But yeah, getting to Indiana, um, you know, that was a time in the late 90s when at a Midwest kid, there, the idea of entrepreneurship wasn't really uh, planted a seed easily. It was local business was your idea of entrepreneurship, not the uh, Mark Zuckerberg type. So I wanted to go to GE after I was like, I'd read every Jack Welch book. I thought that was the 
premier escape from college. And, and I did that. So I spent a couple of years there. And this was what year? Um, 2002. So I was, uh, I've perfectly timed my uh, exits and entrance into the workforce at the worst possible times. Uh, so that was post the dot-com meltdown. But that industry was still pretty strong. It was a sales rotational program. I mean, I had no idea what I was actually going to do, but the GE logo, I knew some people that worked there. Uh, and it was a good experience um, for a while. And then I realized I'm not a big company guy and and then uh, left there and started at a, at a company called Woods Industries, which I, I like to joke, every single person owns a product from this company and they don't know that they own a product from this company. Is they, uh, they were the largest extension cord manufacturer. <laughs> so whether it was an interior household one or an extra you know, Christmas light thing or on a construction crew, they didn't. I went there to launch a product line. So I ended up becoming a product manager. And I think they thought because I was a GE that that had some transfer, but I, I literally had no idea what I was doing. Was that an Indy too or no? Yeah, they were based out of Indy. The role, well, you know, it's kind of funny now we think about remote work and hybrid, but we had overseas manufacturing. So much of the product and engineering teams just worked at night because mostly Asian manufacturing. So, and I spent about 25% of my time in China setting up joint venture manufacturers. So it was a uh, throw in the deep end, you know, sink or swim. And uh, it was great. It was an amazing experience for me. And that's in like what, 06, 07? Yeah, from oh, like 04 to, to 06, 07. Um, and then I went to grad school from there and went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in uh, upstate New York. And it was an MBA, which was basically the most expensive way to leave your job to know you're going to go start your own thing. But I also had an interest in just getting on the East Coast and um, working with deep tech. So that program just weird. There's a focus on entrepreneurship and commercialization. So you partner with, uh, you know, some kind of master's or PhD level science and you start a company while you're there. So it was a really unique program. There was 30 people in the full time program. And um, I was the only non-technical person (laughs) in the class. So it was a great experience. And my focus was on tech commercialization, venture finance. And I, I got a bunch of experience in that, but ultimately wanted to do my own thing. And yeah, that was it. So talk a little bit about Indianapolis. I hear a lot about comparison with respect to Columbus. How did you feel about the city? Is, is it a city that you would have stayed in longer if there was more opportunities there? Uh, yeah, you know, Indy and Columbus, are they're definitely similar size, you know, all the things. They're definitely different states and different, like, feels to the city. So, I mean, just Indy, it's a big pro sports town, you know, the Indy 500. And there's just a different infrastructure when it's a city like that. And um, so a lot of the things that, you know, the, the big name steakhouses and the big hotels and the big venue type of supporting cast of the downtown is very much there. Nobody lives near the city, at least they didn't back then, especially. Whereas Columbus, you know, Ohio State and just kind of a neighbor, like neighborhood on top of neighborhood on top of neighborhood. So I never felt particularly at home there. I had a lot of friends that, you know, post-college there and stuff. I would not move back there, but, uh, you know, it's like Columbus. They're easy places to live. So, you know, if you're, if you're living there and you've got a family and stuff like that, like, you know, it's fine. And so you go and you spend like roughly four to five years at two pretty big companies. And then all of a sudden realize you had the itch to go off and get an MBA and then try to do your own thing. How did you make it through five years of like such a large company like that and be okay? Did you know the whole time? Like, I just got, I got to learn some more stuff and then get out of here or? I, you know, I wish it was well planned out, but anybody who knows me knows that's probably not (laughs) in my DNA. 
Uh, you know, I I have always chased interesting opportunity, and you know, at GE, I, I saw quickly like, wow, this system is a machine that's well run. But the caveat to that is, you are are tied in kind of a political world. So like, I saw a regime change in our division where it went from like an ex NFL. Super fun, collaborative, competitive guy driving the division CEO to somebody who was the opposite of that and watched the management just lose their spines in a matter of 24 hours. And your fate is just dictated by that. And I'm I mouth off too much, especially back then. You know, it's not a place where someone like me is going to thrive unless you get perfectly latched on to somebody there who can explore all the opportunities with you. So, I mean, I think I was clear, clear, like it wasn't going to be for me. And then what happened was a perfect kind of transition is I, I got a boss at the next company who she said, look, we all run our own little businesses here, basically. So um, I'm here to help you and support you, but you need to figure this out. And then everyone else around there just it's amazing how contagious that kind of mentality is. And so everybody was helping each other. And then when they said, here, buy a plane check to China, to, you know, like tomorrow, and go and start getting out. Like, I was like, well, I got to do this. Like, this is, you know, somebody else's, you know, funding. I like to explore. That was perfect. So the idea that I had no idea, the learning, you know, was amazing. And so I, I wasn't even thinking that far ahead. I mean, I, all I knew was this is a totally new experience. I basically got to build a small little business, although I'm not sure that I, someone thought about it like that, but like I was having fun. It was great people to work with. And um, I would talk to buddies and friends in other jobs that probably were at a, you know, in a similar trajectory and they would have a big company, but like have a product manager title and they were putting PowerPoint slides together while I'm going to China and setting manufacturing, going to the direct selling meetings. We were having a different experience um, and the company, while it was, it was owned by private equity, it was decent size. It was that team ran the company. So we were sort of isolated and on our own. It had been a historical manufacturing company, then not a manufacturing company. So that was still the DNA of the company. Yeah, it's a super interesting experience, especially like the reason I call out the year there is because it became more common probably what in like 2014 to 2019 that people started going over to China and capitalizing on. I mean, I think a lot of people were doing it beforehand, but all of a sudden when the whole e-commerce and like drop shipping thing showed up and people wanted to start manufacturing overseas, it's like everybody started to become comfortable to drive over to China and find manufacturing. And so you're doing it where it's still like kind of pre-dawn social media to some extent, right? Like, I mean, what's going on in 07, 08? <laughs> yeah, uh, I haven't been on the bleeding end of social media ever in my life, but I didn't have a cell phone the first time I went to China. So, I mean, you know, it was very primitive still in, in the tech adoption at the corporate level and international compatibility and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting in a hotel room one of the first trips and I'd, I'd stay for three to six weeks, depending on how much time I was going to be there. And I wanted to track an Ohio State football game, and I went to go to ESPN, and, and the Chinese government didn't let you get on that website on, on my laptop. So you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, well, this is fun. Yeah, this is, I, I forgot what it's like to have some freedom there. But yeah, it was, it was a fun time because there was a lot of pioneering still going on. And um, I wasn't even thinking about the Chinese government and the implications of, of because at that time, it was very pro- business. And so it was just a hustle culture over there. And so everybody you met was trying to, you know, start another company. I mean, it was like how they got granted the opportunity to do that was probably pretty sketchy, but there was a fast paced culture. I mean, you, they were, you know, 
they were on it and it was exciting. And, and as a 24 year old guy, you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And uh, it wasn't intimidating to be there at that time, but it was cool. I think it would be different now um, for many different reasons, but part of it's just the, the saturation of people who've already been over there. Yeah, I mean, you'd meet people who were like, had been there for 15 years and you were like, whoa, like <laughs> you've been here since the dark ages, you know, in the early 2000s. And what is it like six weeks over there? I mean, I can't even imagine 15 years, but six weeks of being in a different culture where you don't speak, I'm assuming you don't speak fluent Chinese. I speak uh, neither Cantonese nor Mandarin other than, you know, what I could get away with in like a, you know, a street mall or something at the time, which was some basic negotiating. <laughs> so it's like, it's just even more challenging to meet new people and things like that. You're kind of isolated on your own, right? I mean, do you, you look back on that experience, does anything stick out in particular in terms of uh, how it changed you as a person or changed you professionally? Yeah, I, like I had a couple, we had some office over there. So we'd, we'd get somebody from our place would come with us a lot. So our day-to-day interactions on the business level were interesting. But once you're there that long, you're on the weekends and stuff. Sometimes you get some time on your own. I think every time I, you know, you go overseas for an extended period of time or even, you know, the U.S. is big enough, you can just go to another part of the country for a long enough period of time. You realize that everybody's just trying to do the same thing. You know, they're trying to make enough of a living, hang out with their friends, stay healthy, eat good food. I mean, and what was great about over there was that, you know, the people we were with often, they were really interested in sharing the culture with us. So when we were eating very traditional Chinese meals and all those kind of things, I love, see for me that, that whatever fills my cup up, that newness of an experience is very addicting, especially that time in your life, you've got you know, enough energy to stay up late and get up early. And it was a lot of fun. I think for me, it it just, it was a constant reminder of that, like, keep trying new things, Um, you know, know, and that keeps you fresh, keeps your mind, you know, thing. And just, just immersing, like, in other cultures is, you know, a reminder of how unique and interesting ours is too. Yeah, I feel like every time I travel somewhere new, I definitely didn't do it growing up or anything. I just realized how many more people there are out there doing things that I would just never thought of. Like you just, you kind of start to realize the world is so big, right? And you get caught up in your little bubble sitting here. So you go off, you do your MBA and you enjoy that experience. You kind of create your own company while you're there. What year do you wrap that up? And then where do you go after you continue to pursue that uh, venture that you were working on or go on to something else? Yeah. 08 was when I, I graduated there and, um, we didn't continue to pursue that, although I had, I had started a, a company while I was there outside of that called Clearwish. And um, yeah, we got in the car, drove. We thought, we, I think we thought we were going to San Francisco or something eventually, but you know, we stopped here. And then, you know, whatever, 14 years later, we're, we're still here. So, but what happened then was I had been consulting on the side with a company that I had met through grad school that was licensing technology out of Ohio State helping those guys raise some money for this new division. I helped them stand it up. So I was able to do that and then moonlight on Clearwish. And to kind of bring the context of Columbus into light here, Columbus in 2008, tech scene perspective was pretty nascent. Um, None of the things that everybody listening to this would quickly think of, drive capital, even rev one to whatever extent, none of that existed. There was uh, maybe some different names and some different people, but at the scale and the thing we think about now here, that, you know, it's not. And I, I was fortunate. I got introduced to a couple people like within 24 hours. They said, hey, there's this thing this weekend called Startup Weekend. It was the one of the first five that had ever been put on and that happened to be in Columbus. Uh, you should go check it out. So I did. 
I went and pitched Clearwish, which I had, you know, sort of gotten off the ground. And uh, a bunch of people wanted to do it. I actually left, though, because I pitched and I was like, I don't know this thing. I don't know if this thing this weekend is going to be that much fun. And I think like one of the new Batman movies was coming out. I really want to go see that. So I go and one of the guys who's an organizer got a hold of me later that night and in the morning and said, hey, like, I think you had the number one pitch and there's a bunch of people who'd love to work on it over the weekend. So I, I raced back down there and, and we worked on it and I ended up picking up two business partners, Brad Griffith, some people know in town, Buckeye Interactive and, and Steve Krause didn't live here anymore. And and we started running with with Clearwish, which was, uh, it's coined in the in the investor terms as a social e-commerce, but what it really was, was a, a browser extension that operated much like Pinterest. So you, this is pre-Pinterest. So you would, you know, save an item, picture description price, throw it on a list. And what was unique about it was that what we thought was gonna be like a registry wish list kind of product, uh, it turned out to be what Pinterest basically was, which is a window shopping, um, shareable product for daydreaming on, you know, the family room renovation or whatever. So within a few weeks, we were one of the top Amazon affiliates in the country. We had the number one search results for many of the people's names who were on our list. And uh, it started to attract some attention, um, not albeit not attention from Columbus investors, but actually from some West Coast investors. And uh, I think we, we started to pitch some big retailers. And again, we're fish out of water. I could not have really told you any venture capital brand names in any series at that time was just learning all that. Didn't really anything about. I'd learned all this academic stuff about venture finance, but that's just not the same as getting a term sheet put in front of you or, or trying to craft all that pitch and all that stuff. So we went to pitch DSW on a big program for them. And um, it was a day the market crashed from the housing crash. And um, CEO couldn't come to the meeting. They laid off like half their workforce the next day. You know, the markets are imploding. So we kind of retreated a little bit like, okay, like, well, maybe this is, and um, we still, we still made some progress with the company, bootstrapped it and, and made it do some deals with it. But that was my first kind of thrown into the deep end Columbus. What it did for me more than anything was I met a ton of people here. And also I think just next step in your courage of like, okay, yeah, like I'm going to keep doing this. It's like the most addicting thing of all time. So yeah, so that set in motion for me then it, staying in Columbus and, and starting to work on companies. And so you wrap that up in what year? We started to transition into other things, 2010, officially. So you went, went with it for Couple about years. two years then? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a long ride. And so throughout that part, you start to realize how much you like the entrepreneurship, the actual creation of it. You go through, you're building your confidence. You've already done it once and okay, I can do this again and I can come up with another idea. And then so you sit back in 2010 and what direction do you do the same partners and where do you find your idea or problem to solve? Yeah, I probably like many people I have a handful of things. So stewing in the back of my mind that um, if you get a couple of beers in you and you start talking to all your pals to find out if anybody else really thinks this is interesting or if they feel the same problem and traveled a fair amount in my life. But I was interested in the, the travel ecosystem at the time. And um so we ended up starting a company called Fly Much, which became Seen, actually. And um, the first premise of the company was that, you know, when most people are going through the buying experience on an Expedia, 99.9% of the people that are on Expedia or Orbitz, whatever it is, they never buy anything. So, you know, anybody who's in about e-commerce, that's like a pretty awful conversion rate. And we started to understand why, you know, they're price shopping, they're they're missing recommendations from friends, they're... Maybe they're just daydreaming about travel and they're not actually in, in the buying intent phase. Um, but we decided that, you know, 
if you could bring some information into the buying process while they're in that experience, um, you could help, you know, change that conversion rate. But more interesting for the for the person that's actually shopping, you could you could support them and, and help them build like a almost like a travel social network persona behind the scenes profile interest miles, you know, this sort of whole ecosystem of my travel interest behind me that goes along with me while I'm shopping. So we built some prototypes for that. I partnered with Jim Kamnikar, who had been, um, you know, on when the founders, his wife started going antiques and they had sold that company. So he was like the old school internet guys, like they had been building sites from the day, you know, flipping up servers back in the day when he had to do all that kind of stuff. And but he was, you know, I think in clumps of time, you needed some uh, gray hair well alongside you to, to raise money. And, um, and, and just he had a wealth of operating experience that was, you know, really great for product building. So we got together and uh, we ended up raising a uh, million dollars in Columbus, which in 2010 was probably in the top three or four times that it ever happened for an Internet company. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience. We got that off the ground. We ended up. You know, working with all these travel companies, but what's interesting is that the social media companies like Instagram were starting to emerge. And what we wanted to do was grab location data, uh, so like photos and and sort of like recommendations from other sources, and pull them into our tool while you're shopping, so you could see all these aggregated photos, from, you know, from all these places. So I ended up meeting, you know, Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger when there was three guys sitting in an old place in San Francisco, and you know, just asking them politely if I could. Tap into their their data. We were the second company to ever do it, and so we were we were just I don't know we were figuring it out on the fly. Um, ultimately, the kind of online travel agencies like Expedia they hated that we were so we would scrape your uh, your some of your data off the screen. We'd say like you know I'm going to go to Boston. We'd take that off the screen while you were booking, and so they started messing with us and like trying to like ban us from being on their sites, and uh, it got started to go towards scene in that. We saw that the, the venues themselves that we were learning a lot about what people want to go, they had no data. I mean, this is, it feels like everything's been, you know, in existence forever. But even in 2010, most people didn't have Instagram accounts. Definitely businesses didn't. But it was starting to, people were starting to notice that by location, you could see a lot of data. So we started to aggregate, we basically flipped the whole thing over to a venue dashboard where venues then could buy an account from us, a subscription, and see all of the aggregated photos and, and all the sharing going on on social media uh, for their place. And there was still no advertising on most of those platforms at that time. So they were starting to be interested in how they participate, and they wanted to see if they could run contests. And we, so we started to build out a whole campaigning infrastructure on Instagram. Ultimately, we realized we had access to all what they would call influencers now, but we thought, wow, we have these, all these cool content creators. We know who the best ones are. So we totally, you know, in the, in the words of Techstar, TechCrunch, whatever, we pivoted the company, but it was really just found the right business model. And um, yeah, that was, that was the trajectory of that. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. 
Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. So they're using it almost like you would look at a tag page on your company on Instagram now is basically what your guys' entire business model was. And then just to give you like the ease of getting a company onboarded, most companies at the time had four square accounts. And so we'd convince them they have, you know, 30 locations or 20 hotels or something, uh, you know, sync your Foursquare account. And then we'll use that as like the primer to go get all the location data from all these other sites. Uh, there was dozens of these location check-in sites that had photos and stuff. So we had a, a whole host of those that we were aggregating from. But yeah, they would use it for that. I mean, think of it as just kind of a, a dashboardy kind of thing at the time. That led into campaigning because uh, we launched uh, with New Balance. They wanted to do a, launch a new product line on Instagram, but you know they needed to aggregate, moderate. They want to do it in a contest format with all the sharing. So we built a product basically for them to be able to you know aggregate, moderate, and publish the photos from Instagram. That was in 2012. And then we got our first creator campaign in, in uh, probably like 2013 with Hershey's. And that set us, I mean, if you could have this picture of a bunch of idiot guys sitting in a room packaging up like pretty Hershey's boxes and mailing them out to creators to take pictures of baking cookies. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. But that, that was the big shift for us going from probably what would a SaaS subscription into the media side of the, of the budget and brands and ultimately kind of being one of the first influencer marketing. I mean, we weren't really an agency, but we were more of a tools company. So starts in 2010. How long do you keep growing it for? Like it, maybe where's the pivot and then how long until eventually you make the exit there? Well, we had been, um, many entrepreneurs have been through this experience. You, you know, that million dollars evaporates way faster than you think it's going to. So we were able to ask our investors for a little bit more money. And we also had found a business model. We were getting some subscription dollars, but we were sort of suspicious as to whether the market would handle another big investment. So between 2012 and 2014, we sort of kept growing that, looking for a, a, even more market fit. What's the expanded scope of the business? Uh, about 14, you started to see a lot of entrance into the market. Instagram had kind of leveled up there. and then bought by Facebook in the last few years. So that whole like, ecosystem was expanding, a lot more attention was being paid to it. And there's an inflection point in there, probably in 15, 16, where all of a sudden companies we'd never heard of were raising $25 million. Saying they're doing the same thing as us, but we knew they didn't have any real clients. And you know, right or wrong, we just, uh, we didn't raise money. You know, we sort of lost market share at the time you know, we weren't in LA or New York uh, to whatever extent that mattered. At the time, it mattered a little bit just because they were able to attract sort of the media agency world a little easier than us. So we started to focus more niche on how we could get bought by a media company. And specifically, we were looking at the transition of traditional media companies like a CBS type company into a more interactive company. So we started to shop it on our own around there. And you know, classically got to the altar with a, with a couple of deals and they fell apart. And, uh, so, you know, that was a lot of, a lot of heartache and a roller coaster ride for the team. And my, you know, if I learned one thing from the experience is like, we had a resilient team that was willing to suffer through a lot of those 
uncertain times because, you know, they see, you know, you're trying to keep the shit afloat while at the same time you're going to these meetings. You know, we were as transparent about the whole process with everyone and it was tough. And I mean, our team was amazing. Uh, but ultimately, um, as things go, uh, ICX Media was, you know, a friend, uh, our, one of our board members had acquired the, the new president of that company's company. And and it was a good fit because they're a big data heavy company looking to be in the media industry that raised a lot of money. Their CEO was a fantastic fundraiser. Uh, so they had a war chest and we had customers. And so that marriage was and we did the deal in six weeks. And that's the thing. If you can do the deal fast, you know, that's the key to the deal. That's awesome. And then so from there to a line, is that is there anything in between? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for folks that are local, they would know, um, historically, they would know Hopewell. Um, so we started Hopewell first, as which is what really became a line. And yeah, the concept, that, I mean, similar to other stuff, like I had no business being in these industries at all. I don't have history in that. But what uh, Emily Kaplan, who is a co-founder with me, she and I knew each other through college sports. She's captain of the women's soccer team at Ohio State. And we knew each other through friends and sports. And She'd been at Chipotle for 10 years, on the road 100% of the time, watching from an HR lens how they were building their talent and team and, and experience. And, you know, I've been doing it here and thinking to myself, going to startup weeks, going, you know, traveling around the country, different offices. You go to the West Coast, then you come back to Columbus, especially in the, you know, sort of the early 2000s, early 2010s. Out there, they're getting offices with, you know, Whole Foods inside them and stuff. And here, you know, it seemed like we were we were long, far behind that. And I'm not saying those things are good. They're just, that's what that was going on. And I noticed that, like, the experience employees seemed to be talking to me about was not in alignment for their best performance, like actual work performance, if you think of it like an athlete. They weren't really happy, but they liked the work. So there's, like, this huge disconnect. And her and I start riffing on it, and we're like, is the space the problem? Like the spaces people actually physically work in? And we started formulating in a concept of like a student union for professionals, place where we had these like top three or four experiences that we really liked. So, you know, going to a coffee shop, having a, a great coffee and talking, you know, business, private, quiet workstation areas, collaborative tech enabled teams, and then kind of group social gathering spots for trainings, whatnot. We met Ira Sharfin, who is the CEO and owner of Continental Office, and he's not a furniture guy. So he starts hearing what we're saying, and he's like, yeah, let's, I can see the future of work, big part of space being like that. And he had to have a showroom and was like, there's no the static showroom that nobody wants to come in and see. What if we combine and conceptually put something together where, you know, we can test out this business model and he can leverage that as a showroom. And so that's how that came. We were kind of moonlighting doing that at the same time we're wrapping up the things we were on and that was how the concepts got started and, and the align bridge is is similar and almost what we learned with you know fly much to scene was that the problem that we were we saw on the front end was not the real problem the problem was on the back end uh, as you often learn in these things so then you kind of do another slight pivot as you're running that how does that come to fruition and then take us to where you're at today yeah, so one of the things that happened right early on, this is uh, so probably 2017, 18, when we first you know, were getting the concept of the space up and then actually opening it, was that we were having corporate folks come through with Continental and they would be talking about their needs and what are they trying to do. And we'd hear on these tours, we'd be talking to the, the C-suite and leadership teams and, oh, hey, uh, you know, I think we need to get a space that the millennials will like. 
And, uh, you know, if you know how to ask them questions, you're like, okay, I don't, that actually does no meaning, right? What, what they think is that they're right in that their, their experience they have on site in their offices does not match something. It, you know, they said millennials, but it's really everybody. <laughs> so we started to dig in. And, and as we ask questions about, well, you've recognized you want to make this change. What kind of data do you have? What kind of information about your employees? What's their needs and preferences? What's your goal? What's your return on investment? Oftentimes, if not all the time, real estate is the number two thing behind labor on you know the balance sheet of these companies. And it gets a massive uh, amount of inadequate attention that they would give to any other part of their business. And so we recognize, okay, even if we could convince them just with a pretty place that they should make a change, they're going to be convinced by numbers. And they don't have them. And we decided that we could start to build a model about how do you reveal the individual preferences and needs of an individual. So think people will say things like, I'm a night owl. I like to get my best work done at night or, you know, I get up earlier in the morning. Well, then if you actually like suss out, well, yeah, where do you want to do that? Oh, I like to do it in this type of environment. You start to get all these things that line up to things that are like, how can I repeat those scenarios for every person if I possibly could? But as much like a marketing audience, you're going to build a profile of an audience and that audience is going to have audiences within inside of that audience and there's going to be overlap and you're going to prioritize needs. So we spent the better part of two years just trying to figure out how to refine a model to be able to define what is a peak performance work experience and you know, what are the elements and how do we capture that information quickly. Pandemic hit in the middle of this and conceptually that idea went from a vitamin to a painkiller all of a sudden. But the space in of itself was a component where it's like, can we take the space and the experience in the space, have several spaces, call them labs, work on those, connect that to a data model and help to show companies like we're eating our own dog food here. We've got labs and spaces and that. And we just have now come through a transition of sunsetting the labs part of the business, which, you know, I'm still a believer that there's a, a market for that, but we're running two completely separate businesses. One's basically a hospitality company and the other one's uh, you know, sort of an analytics and consulting business. So that brought us to where now we're 100% focused on helping companies understand their workforce preferences and needs to have peak performance. And then how do you invest in that? Which in most companies comes in some kind of policies, you know, hybrid remote on site, you're going to do some investment in space. What are those spaces? What's the ideal situation for those? And then tools of tech. And that formula is what we do would define as the functional work experience for an individual. Super cool how it's unfolding for you guys. And so what are the goals for the future? Like, are you looking out two years, four years, five years? Yeah, I mean, ideally, we would like to be the preeminent data, sort of world-class data suite of employee experience. So what Gallup has done in the employee engagement world, we'd like to fancy ourselves to be the largest you know, repository of information about work experience. And from that, people can build better solutions, whether you're an architect, design firm, a corporate real estate person, an HR team, and IT solutions, like they can go and fold the experience they need to have, but they'll have global data set, benchmarking companies. So for us, it's to be that leader and to support the ecosystem. But just like in marketing in the 90s and 2000s, you had this shift from sort of the full analog to digital you know, one thing that's not recognized easily is that like the whole regime of marketing changed. So advertising, you know, savant guru in the 80s, today a CMO is probably largely an analytics and a software buyer and is, has a complicated sort of set of media and sales. 
That's going to happen in the employee experience world where it's a multidimensional problem on many fronts. Labor's going to be tight for a long time. Real estate's expensive. You know, I mean, people are not working the same way. The market world, there's a there's a kind of a stepping stone for us as to how do we ride the wave of adoption in a way where we're not too far ahead of the curve or too far behind the curve. I would say like we were pretty far ahead and just that little bit of timing being on or off can make a big difference as to whether you got the oxygen to survive. We decided to go fully bootstrap going forward. So it's all customer cash invested in the business built on that. Just gives us a lot more options in terms of how we want to grow it, uh, who's the partners are. You know, we've talked about private equity before this. You know, you could have a lot more options to, to grow versus maybe only on the VC treadmill. Yeah, that's great. So, and then one of the final questions we always like to wrap the show up with. It's the theme here: uh, live uncomfortably. So, as you apply it back to you know the multiple companies that you've now either been a part of or started yourself and your journey, uh, what does it mean to you, and how does it resonate, if at all? I think I've thought about this a little bit in the last couple of years, but I think as you get a little bit more experienced, you get a little older, one of the things I would sort of tell myself is to try to think in longer time horizons. Um, so if I think to my, you know, 21, 22-year-old self especially, you know, I was thinking in 12-hour increments <laughs> my life and what was I going to do tonight, what was happening, how much money you're currently making, you know, all those, those kind of things. And like I mentioned, I didn't have really like a career thought process. I wasn't thinking about building a company. I mean, I had these instincts, you know, things that I had. But so I think I personally have just extended my time horizons. And I got into endurance running after college and, and a lot of endurance sports stuff. And nothing in endurance sports comes quickly. I mean, there are some outlier people who are, you know, gifted genetically that can get there. But it's going to take you potentially years to get to certain goals without really damaging yourself. Some of the guys that talk about this are about a thousand day goals and thinking about things in that context. And I think that's one thing for me is, is part of the living uncomfortably is extending your time horizon so you can become interested and better and so go deeper on things. But also I, along the way is uh, like starting another company is super easy in my head. Like if I, if I want to do that and I have something that's super like interesting and I want to go to it, that, that's not, it doesn't seem like a big challenge to me. What is a challenge is, is you get more responsibility, you know, kids, life, all these other things is it's hard to go find a new thing to do, to learn, um, not just business, like things you're personally interested in. So I'm trying to throw those things into the mix without killing myself time-wise to continue to pick something that helps keep me sharp outside of work. And so I think that living uncomfortably, we were talking about a business context, but some of it's just really going to something new, something that, you know, you've, you've said you're going to do, learn the guitar or something, you know, like one of these things and going it, but committing that thousand days to it. And if you commit that thousand days, just interesting things can happen. Yeah. It's an awesome message, especially as you see, you know, it's, it's difficult when you look out and you, you see some of the people who are achieving things at such a young age, and then you want it to happen right away. And so the ability to try to get yourself to step back and be patient and look at things in longer time horizons is not a skill set I would say that I have <laughs> that I'm very strong at, but I, I appreciate it, respect it, and align with your desire behind wanting to move that way. This has been awesome. Ryan, thanks for jumping on with us and excited to see what you continue to see, uh, achieve with Align and your team moving forward. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again here in maybe the next year or two and see, see where you're at then. All right, sounds great. I appreciate it.